I think diversity hires, inclusion programs, all of that is very important. But they don't mean anything if the folks who are making decisions, who are influencing how the community is shaped, who are designing policy and laws, if they can't, within their hearts and minds, shift and change, we'll just have repetition. repetition. We'll have more people color in space, but we'll have the same exact problems that existed. At Clio, our mission is to transform the practice of law for good, and increasing access to justice is a major component of that. Clio fundamentally believes in equity and justice as critical pillars of the legal and judicial system, and we are committed to using our platform to advocate for change. In light of recent events, we're conducting a series of interviews to address the systemic racism that is pervasive in our society. We need to be talking about these topics in the legal industry so that we may create a more equitable and accessible justice system. We hope these conversations can play some part in moving things forward. Today's guest is Andre Robert Lee, a filmmaker, keynote speaker, and teacher who is the Executive Director of Business Development and Strategic Partnerships for Point Made Learning an organization which brings innovative content and programming to institutions and organizations that are serious about inclusion. Andre, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, thanks for having me, Jack. I'm excited to talk and share. So Andre, first of all, tell us about your story. Uh, you've been committed to anti-racist and social justice work throughout your career. Would love to start mm -hmm. our conversation just hearing a bit more about your background and your personal story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because right over my shoulder, I think that helps us get there. I, I'm a filmmaker and a teacher and a professor and all those things. Um, I, was a, I grew up a low-income kid and got a big scholarship to, high, to attend a high school in Philadelphia called the Germantown Friends School. And the Germantown Friends School, when I got there, was really just a shocker in lots of ways. And I made a film about it called The Prep School Negro uh, to try and illustrate and discuss that experience. And the logo behind me on the wall here, it's a reinterpretation of the school's logo. The school's logo was a kind of androgynous and colorless angel bursting through a door. And a motto was, behold, I have set before thee an open door. And I didn't see myself in it. So when I was making my movie, um, I hired a graffiti artist here in New York City <laughs> where we were checking in from. And I was like, you know what? Reinterpret this model for me. You talked about my experience. And this is what he came up with. And it's on the wall behind me. So it's... Um, Kind of ironic now that this is the room where I'm doing these kind of conversations and I you know I became committed to this work at an early age because I when I went to my high school my mother worked in a factory and the man who owned the factory his son was in my class so all of a sudden I'm in this really intense private high school that changed everything and I I couldn't identify and say things like systemic racism or economic inequality but I had this notion in the school thinking these kids have a certain kind of life I don't have, and I don't understand how to articulate that. And I think I spent a lot of time trying to understand what that was and think about how I could change that in the world. So I'll, I'll first point out, you mentioned the film, The Prep School Negro, which is available on Vimeo for, for purchase for anyone interested in, in checking it out. But give us, a, give us a perspective on what you walk through in this, in this film. You, you talk about and explore the... Uh, privilege and in institutional inequity uh, that you experienced in the, the film. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's a kind of thing. The institution was wonderful and lovely. I actually, I teach there once a week. I commute from Philadelphia, New York. Well, I used to commute from Philadelphia, right. New York, and now I do it virtually. And um, incredible, powerful school. And it was one of the first times I was told that I could do the, I could do the best and be the best. 
and that I should work hard, that I deserve to participate equally in society. And I was just exposed to the potential to achieve. And I, I remember thinking early on, like, why wasn't my education just like this the past eight years of my life, the past nine years of my life, kindergarten through eighth grade? I had a good education, a great private, a great parochial school, but I got here and I was exposed to some incredible literature. And I really was, I really found myself thinking, you know, what's going on in American education when this is not standard, this is not normalized. And seeing these families that were, seemed to be, seemed to be on the surface achieving so much more than I was. And I was really struck by it and taken aback. It was my own personal journey. You know, we all arrive at this in different ways. So this film was a chance to try and bring forward people into a conversation about how, how it feels to be other and try to encourage people who maybe don't have a chance to be involved in this dialogue to understand that perspective of others. And, you know, when I made this film, I thought, who wants to see this film? It's just me whining about my privileged education. And I was at a school in California and a 70 year old woman, white woman fell into her arms weeping afterwards. And I was like, there, there, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And I realized it was about the human experience of trying to verbalize that internal dialogue and express when you don't feel, when you feel like an outsider and how right. you can get folks to listen to you. And how did you stumble on this, this opportunity, Andre, when, when you got this, this scholarship to go to the school, you, it feels like you've, you felt that you were somehow lucky to have fallen into this. This wouldn't have been your, your default path. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. You know, it's, um, I learned after making the movie how I really got into the school. Um, we found out my mother, my mother passed away. And when the film was present and out, I was taking it around to various people and I showed it to the high school where I went and folks, you know, were, had things to say. And one, someone, someone said, you know, it's great to see this film because, you know, we love, we love how you got here. And I was like, well, how did I get here? And long story short, turns out my mother was seeing a therapist secretly for years. And he knew about the school and suggested I think about attending. And, you know, this is a man who could see that I was, I was one of those kids that just read everything. And I went, they had a thing called the basketball reading clinic. And I went there and I was horrible at basketball, but a great reader. <laughs> and I had a school one day just said, Hey, how do you feel about coming to school here? And I, I really honestly was looking around saying, what school? I don't, I don't see a school because it was so different than what I knew and understood. Wow. So you actually didn't know the path that led you to that school until you'd published the the movie. Yeah. Yeah. The real, like I thought I knew, but I learned the real secret universe. I had a mother, I had a mother who said, my boy needs something different. And she found a way. Um, and, and you think about that, a, a factory worker, my mother raised us on about $13,000 a year, you oh. know, in, in 1985. That's incredible to achieve that. And she somehow found a school through a therapist and they put me in a basketball clinic. I don't know if they were thinking I might go to school there someday, but it was something to do that summer. And the principal of the school was also the basketball clinic coach. And he saw me, we had a thing called the word of the day um, where kids had to, we had, during a scrimmage at the end of the day, a team would get bonus points for using the word of the day in a sentence. They pull the whistle, <laughs> stop the game. So I was a dude who was never, ever, ever picked to play on a basketball team. I was, like, I was always, I guess I'll take Andre. I was that kid. And then now I was like the first or second pick because they knew I got the word <laughs> of the day. 
So I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, I found my way. That's great. Um, so Andre, you worked with Point Made Learning on making this, this film, and you also worked with Point Made as a producer on the documentary, I'm Not Racist, Am I? Which followed 12 teens as they spent a year in high school learning about racism. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about creating that film and, and some of the messages mm -hmm. that came across in, in, in producing that film for you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we, that film came to us through a school called the Calhoun School. It's a school in the Upper West Side. Um, great schools. A school with no walls is what it, one of its, one of its uh, calling points. And a teacher there, his name was David Alfred. David was a white man living in New York City, living in Harlem, thinking I'm a progressive good guy. And he went through a training that's all about deconstructing racism. And he's in his 50s. And he's, I just said I was embarrassed. I didn't think about racism from a systemic perspective. I never thought about it that way. I thought about if you're nice to someone, you're good to someone. I live in Harlem. I live around different people. Therefore, I'm, I'm all good and fine. And he was really shocked by what he learned about what systemic racism was. And so he said, I want, some, I want to do something where I can get teenagers thinking about racism from this perspective. So moving away from individual meanness and moving to understanding it from a systemic perspective. And he said he, wanted, he developed a curriculum. He wanted to do something online. He thought, I'll do a documentary also that could be used as a tool to screen for young people. And um, he, we, we applied because we heard about it. And our company, Appointment Learning, got the, got the gig. And we came in and helped produce the film. And we spent, we spent about probably about a good half a year looking for students to be in the film. And we made it just for that purpose. Like, how do we get people thinking about racism in a new and different way? It's kind of ironic and intense that right now at this moment, the world is stepping forward and saying, hey, systemic racism is the thing. You know, I've had a lot of people call me the past, past 15 days, you know, saying, hey, you know, that stuff we talked about freshman year in college, you might have been right. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm looking at what's happening. It's like, yeah, let, let, tell me more. And it's one of the reasons we, we wanted to talk to you as well, Andre. This is something you've been talking about for, uh, for years. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm curious, we, we want to talk about how point-made learning and, and some of the work you're doing um, might apply to the legal industry as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You work with corporations, institutions, and communities through point-made learning. Can you talk about how you work with these groups, what kind of specific tools and uh, methodologies you make available to these groups that want mm -hmm. to uh, get better about being able to have conversations about racism, understanding what structural racism looks like, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, we have been, from the beginning, a group that says, if you want to just check the box, we're not your right hire. We're not your right partner. And the film gets very deep in terms of into these conversations. And in the film, you see 12 children go through a process over a year plus, where they go, about, go through about eight different workshops. They first get a definition of racism and then are challenged to discuss it with each other at a very intense level. So we use that film. We never send a film without someone to join the conversation. We show the film and then we require people to immediately sit and talk about it and have a process. Um, and so something we've done actually, and I'll, I'll, we've done this in many institutions, corporations, high schools, colleges, universities. And, you know, and honestly, we've been in a few law firms. I remember the first law firm that got called, I was like, uh, are you sure? You know, and, and they said, yeah, we are. We, we are 
folks working on all kinds of issues and problems and ideas. We want to have some good um, understanding of it. We're actually we're working. Why I'm actually were you? Working. Uh, so, sorry, Andre. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious why you were skeptical. It sounds when when the law firm called. <laughs> I have lots of friends who are lawyers. Let's start there. <laughs> um, no, I, I think um, it's just it just was a surprising call to hear from folks, and you know, usually the HR department or diversity department saying we want to help our lawyers think about these issues in a new way. You know, folks are dealing with all kinds of cases and situations relating to people. You know, it's, I think we, we often think about lawyers as being separate and far away, but, but lawyers are, are in direct contact with all kinds of people. Absolutely. You know, all kinds of people. It's, and, and I think that helping to get to a place of understanding and having a deep relationship is, is uh, a good spot. So I think the, it was lack of knowledge about what attorneys may be thinking about and how they would approach it if they even cared about this issue. Because my thought was, well, this, will this help them win cases or will this help them become better people and more effective at their work? And I learned that it was the latter, you know, right. which, is, which is phenomenal, which I imagine feeds into the former, you know, but I really learned early on that it was latter. And we, I won't name that we've worked at some large, large law firms. I've done sessions where I'm talking to people and I am in one room and we're Skyping to 10 offices around the country. You know, um, and it's 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 incredible to have that conversation. But you know, we're actually so to talk about how the work's expanded. So we had the film, and we ma- we broke the film down because we can't be everywhere. So we made this online. It's called Look Deeper Race, and it's an online course. And the film was broken up into three hours. And so you watch a scene, and then an amateur pops up. And it's like, wow, that was intense, huh? It takes you to an exercise and workshop help you understand the work deeper. And there are, there are, there are bonus pieces and, 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 and um, it's eight modules. And within that, are monstrous. No within problem. that, yeah, within that eight hour, within that three hours, you go through eight different modules and it's broken up into sections so you can explore it. So what we've done with that is we've actually turned that into a five part training tool. So I'm working, I'm working with a law firm that has about, I won't name them, because we haven't done the big deal yet, about 600 lawyers, 600 employees, I should say. Mm-hmm. And we work in groups of eight to 10. And what we do is we assign them module, we do an introduction, this exercise called, what's the something I said? That's all about how do you respond when you're either offended or you are the offender? And we walk them through points and steps and ideas. We call it the point made method. The first one is point, pause, oh, only if, and it goes forward. That breaks down how do you actually engage in a conversation? And then we take them through, through five, we, we take them through the modules and we stop after each one. And it's, I mean, it's a five week period. Like we, you were taking time out of your day, taking 90 minutes out of your day, sitting, cause we are not check the box. We're like, let's dig deep into it. And the real focus is helping folks think about racism in a new and different way. And at the same time, engaging with your community. You know, so it's not, it's not we're sitting in a room and we're all listening to a lecture. It's you got homework to do, you're doing the work, you show up and you participate in the conversation um, and go through. It's broken up into five sections, as I said. And the last section, we actually have an online version of the American Dream Game. And the American Dream Game is this program that was developed by a professor at U Michigan. She was trying to help her graduate students, she was trying to help her graduate students understand what it meant to talk about and, and dig into systemic racism. They're very resistant. 
So she made this game where you, you take on the role of a different character, someone who's different from you racially, ethically, racially, religious, orientation, gender, all the, all, the, all the things in there. And you play this game and there are various chance cards that pop up. And the game itself represents the system and the characters represent the individuals um, in terms of how we deal with the system. And what, what's powerful about it is that you actually get to explore and walk in someone else's shoes. You know, for instance, there are two characters that are the polar opposite. There's Alex. He's white, straight, Christian, upper income, basically no disabilities, and has that life. Then we have Isabella. She's, uh, his, first, his, first, his first language is English. Isabella, her first language is Spanish. She is not documented. She's lower income, you know, and, you know, we roll the dice. It's like, it's like shoots and ladders piece of game of life with right. systemic racism thrown in there. And typically what happens is Isabella is towards the end and Alex is moving forward, even if she rolls more on the dice. And what you do in that is you engage folks in a conversation, you know, because like there's a card that says, you know, you have a job interview in 20 minutes for a potential advancement in your career. Say you're about to be a partner. You cut your finger and you run to the medicine cabinet in the office and the only band-aids are identified as flesh tone. And the card says all people of color take one step back. And what happens in that moment is people go like, wait, 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 it's just a Band-Aid. Why would you take a step back? You're trying to reach, reach success. And people of color go, oh, because it's really annoying that you go into an, a closet or a medicine cabinet and a Band-Aid say flesh tone. And that flesh tone is nothing like my flesh tone. And you, you know, it's, 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 it seems like a little moment. But the idea is that how do you get people who never think about that? You know, if you put a band on, when I put a band on, based on what the band is look like, it looks different. And, you know, when you go into a moment where you're considering a position moving forward, you don't want to have anything in your mind that's going to stop you and challenge you. You want to feel free and move forward and feel open. And that is what a flesh tone band to help someone do and, what, and how it helps some, it pulls someone back in the other direction. And what's great about that is, what's great about that is we engage folks in a conversation because people playing go, I don't get it. Or someone goes, I get it. And we say, tell them why you don't get it. Okay, tell them why you do get it. And you get folks involved in it. It's, it's, it's uh, as you can see, I get excited about it. I think it's well, it's, it, it sounds like a, a really eye-opening exercise. And as you point out, there's systemic racism manifests itself in ways both big and small. And it, it feels like so much of the, the discourse that's happening right now is around this idea of opening up people's eyes to the fact that simply not being a racist is not enough. It's about being anti-racist and about understanding yeah. the kind of structural racism that exists and being cognizant of it, but also when you're, when you have the opportunity acting against it and, mm -hmm. and being able to speak up. And it, it, it sounds like this way you have of working with organizations also helps build the comfort level and having the hard discussions, which mm -hmm. you won't get from just passively consuming a, a webinar that was delivered to you by HR. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that, about the conversations you see start happening and, and what you've seen happen in a room when people start getting comfortable with those conversations, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which are deeply right. uncomfortable to have without, without question. We walk in the door and we say, get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, and you're, what we find is our approach to it works. Like we, we don't, we, we, we aggressively work to not use what I call the phraseology, you know, 
the, the words are very important. They're very true. Microaggressions, feeling triggered, all that is very real. Mm-hmm. We don't use that in our language and in our approach to the conversation and work. We try and have to be very conversational, be very intellectual, and dig right into the, the, the root. Because what I honestly have seen, I've seen people who know all the words, but don't have any depth behind it. Hmm. You know, and we're trying to get to that deeper level because we're thinking about change. You know, one, this was this, we, we do an exercise called at the end of our, under this, end of this five week workshop, we do an exercise called start, stop, change. So you studied all this work, you study all this material. Okay. What are you going to start doing when it comes to being an anti-racist individual person, worker? What are you going to stop doing? that you do now and what can you change? And I'll share an example that stays with me to this day. An attorney at one of my sessions said, you know, I, was, I came into this thinking I'm a good guy. I don't have anything to learn. You know, I've been mm-hmm. wonderful. I give, I donate, you know, I, I spend my time helping people. But I'm, I'm seeing by unpacking some of this history, I have a lot more to learn. Um, and something I, can, I think I can do right now and this is so wonderful. And I, this is the message I share, I share as much as I can. He said, every summer I get interns. I get people who want to learn about legal, the legal world. And it's easy for me to say, hey, yeah, John, send your son David over. Come on in, David. You can work at this firm. I could turn to institutions where children don't have access to our, our, our white shoe. Is that I get it right? White shoe, right? Yeah. White shoe firm. That's right. A yeah. white shoe, high level firm. And I could go to them and say, who in your institution wants to learn about law? Like, that's it right there. Like, and David, David, his friend's son will be fine. That's not taking something from him. That is opening the door for someone else that had no idea that this kind of law firm exists. And I, I said, yes, that's it right there. That's the moment. That's, that's the change that we can see. I think diversity hires, inclusion programs, all of that is very important, but they don't mean anything if the folks who are making decisions, who are influencing how the community is shaped, who are designing policy and laws, if they can't, within their hearts and minds, shift and change, we'll just have repetition. repetition. We'll have more people color in space, but we'll have the same exact problems that existed. We're, we're trying to unpack something that's as old as civilization, you know, when right. it comes to, to racist ideas. And our country, we say things, the country was built on it. But if you really, I mean, you really sit down and read and take apart and understand the work of the forefathers, you know, I don't think they had bad intentions towards people. They were on a path to maintain control and land and power. And that was a driving force. And anything that got in the way was just hacked out of the way or, or, or set up in place to fit into the process mm-hmm. that they believed in. And we're living in the results of that right now. You know, the, the GI Bill is a perfect example to look at. The GI Bill is a great idea. It's a great idea. Post-World War II, folks are coming back. Let's give them loans to go to college, build houses. What happened was problematic, and we're seeing it right now. We saw it right now with this current stimulus check and the PP mm-hmm. um, the distribution. Um, there are people in positions of power that are not thinking beyond their circle or their experience. The GI Bill, 85% of that money went to white men. There were plenty of people that needed it that could have benefited, but they didn't. And we saw the continuation of the middle class 
that started after what was constructed after um, after the Great Depression, rebuilding the, the beginning of the middle class. Mortgages yeah. and loans were started, but those loans were not given to black people, and they were aggressively told not to give to black people. Who were those people making those decisions? Now we come to the stimulus package. Now, who were the people in the banks and the government that? Couldn't for second go. Wait a minute. Are we distributing this equally? I think they really were going for like what they thought they knew, what they thought would work, you know. Which is why something like here in New York, uh, we see some major corporations getting support. Yes, they need it, but other other corporations need it too. And if you don't have people in place that are thinking like that and are challenging themselves or allowing themselves to be challenged to restructure and come at it, we just stay right where we are. Yeah. And on that note of change and driving change, Andre, you, you mentioned one example with uh, internships and thinking about who you select. What other ways do you see organizations such as law firms being able to commit to addressing some of these systemic issues? It sounds like it's there's there's actions you can take, but more importantly, the the underlying shift in mindset is is so crucial to actually have this translate to to some kind of lasting impact and change mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think you know i i i, I believe in impacting on a policy level mm -hmm. on an executive level it's but i go about it in a, a different kind of strategic way and i go to the people i'm pushing to change hearts and minds i i want someone to the next time you're in a boardroom look around and see who's there and think about who's not and think about why they're, why they're not there, you mm -hmm. know? Now, great to think about that. Now, when you take action and bring folks into the room that are going to challenge you, that are, have a different approach from you, that think differently from you, act differently from you, how can you find ways to collaborate and work together? Because it's easy, you know, I've seen this, I've seen this happen many times. It happens with white men, where white men, when it comes to an argument or a situation with a woman, and primarily a woman of color, as opposed to really staying in an argument and having that debate, they pull back. They don't want to sound racist. They don't want to sound sexist. Mm -hmm. It's like, actually, how can you say, wait a minute, I disagree because of this, and have that dialogue inter interaction instead of checking out. That checking out is easy. Because when you check out, you can go back to your other colleagues like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't do that either. You know, be safe. Don't don't step in that. Don't step in that that mess of situation. You gotta step in it. Sometimes those people may have brilliant, wonderful ideas, and it's a chance to expand and grow. You know, we Deloitte and Touche did an, did an article a couple of years ago that said when you have a more diverse environment when it comes to leaders and people in your company across the border with different opinions and ideas, your 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 bottom line changes. You know, like and that's that's when that's when our phones start ringing when that article came out because folks oh. This will make us more money. Right. We this said, is the, said, the research that diverse teams are higher performing teams. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And make sure you actually really perform on those teams and not, those folks aren't just sitting there ignored and unheard. I think we're right. seeing right now, we're seeing right now a lot of people stepping forward saying, I've been quiet about how I felt in the office in this space, but this is what's been happening to me for years. And it's remarkable to see people go, you've been sitting next to me all this time thinking that you never said anything. Why? Yeah. I think that's the magic moment right there. 
it, it, it feels like you need the combination of diverse teams, but also the, the psychological safety that is present in, in high-performing teams in many circumstances. And you, you need to have that diversity, but you need to have the comfort to have exactly the kinds of conversations it sounds like you see all too often people shying away from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we do something where we, whenever we have an executive in one of our trainings, we talk to them in advance. And we say, you need to be careful. Even if you agree and you love something, um, and we learned this the hard way because we were speaking at a school and had the head of school and had a bus driver. And the head of school was like, this makes sense. Why aren't you all understanding and accepting this instead of allowing for the conversation to happen? And a bus driver was like, if I don't agree, does he, does he mean I get fired? You know? Right. And that's, that's, that's how things stop. So we, we talk to executives in advance and say, be aware of how you lean into these conversations. It's good to share your point and idea, but hold back a little bit when you see someone processing it. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the dynamics are real and people tend to, tend to close off. We, 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 you know, we do a lot of pre-work. We won't go someplace that's not ready for the conversation. We won't do that because we believe in disrupting um, constructively, but not, not dismantling. How, 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 do you, how do you push at that, Andre? How do you see if an organization is really ready to, to do the work? We have conversations. We, we sit down with the people that we can get in touch with and say, hey, you know, so... Uh, let's try and get on, get on the phone with as many people as possible that are decision makers and share our work with them in advance if they can meet with us. We, 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 we build a relationship with a contact. We even have a, we have a, we have a tip sheet that we break down and says, have you talked about this at all? You know, what's your climate like in the community? Mm-hmm. What's your, what's your ethnic breakdown in terms of um, who's in what position, who runs what, are you a diverse corporation or not? And we, we, we take all of that in and then we plan our conversation and our work. Because we'll, if it's someplace that, you know, the best is we go places that say, we don't have racism or problems here. And we're like, okay, um, can you consider that and then come back to us? You know, because that, 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 that can get you into a, a real complicated space. But we have a whole assessment package that we send in advance that looks at where an organization, an organization is so we can make sure that they um, are ready for the work. Because we can, we can scale it back to be intro course, but we like to try and get as far ahead in advance as possible to be the advanced class, you know, to get folks really into the conversation. Because if you're going to a place that is uh, not interested in the dialogue, you know, what are you doing? You know, and it, it's, yeah. it's interesting. I'm, uh, I've been getting, my phone is ringing off the hook for the past two and a half weeks. And Thank you for from, picking up our call, by the way, Andre. <laughs> Well, you you had you had you had a you had one of our darlings in your company. That's right, Mister Sam. So he you got a little bonus intro. Um, but I'm talking to people I never ever ever imagined I would talk to. Some of the biggest banks out there, just saying, "Hi, can you help?" You know, and what we're doing is we're listening to what they have to say, and we're trying to figure out if the work makes sense for them because we will we will quickly say you should talk to this group. Mm-hmm. You should talk to that group. You know, I don't, I don't think there's competition. There's, there is competition, but we don't see it from point made learning perspective. We don't see competition. We see there's not work for everybody. Everyone has yeah. a different approach to it. So let's try her, try him, try them is what we tend to do. If we think it's not a, a real fit for the company. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, how have you pivoted your ways of working with organizations in the, the COVID-19 era? Yeah, we, you know, we, it's actually, we just 
so for instance, a lot of people now are asking to see the movie. A lot of people ask to see the movie. And as you know, we don't just send a link and say, good luck. We really want to sit down and have a conversation. And thought was like, well, how do we do that? Do we do a Zoom mm-hmm. with a thousand people? So we, we're partnering with a group called um, From Privilege to Progress. This is a group started by the two women that um, witnessed the Starbucks incident a couple of years ago. And filmed oh, yeah. It. Yeah. So they, they, they've been, they're fantastic. They're fantastic. And they came to us saying, we, we have hundreds of thousands of people who want help and conversation and need some help. So we've set up a, um, we're going to do a, we're going to, it starts like, it starts right away. We're going to give folks access to buy a ticket to watch the movie. We found a platform that worked. And man, that was so much work to find that. We found a platform that works. Mm-hmm. Folks can watch the movie. And then Tuesday evening, the 16th at 8 p.m., we're going to have a conversation with the two women from, from, uh, from Privilege of Progress and Catherine, director of the film, and I. And we'll have, a, we'll have a, like a large community talk back. And the whole idea is let's bring folks into the conversation. And we have so many tools that are available for folks to go through that we'll, we'll be promoting those all throughout. But we, we, we figured out how to do this online. We're using a great platform called Eventive. And Eventive is, is this really unique online way to, tribute, to show a film. This guy who ran a film festival in Atlanta was getting frustrated with like ticketing, all kinds of things. So he mm-hmm. started to do like an online film festival thing. His son, who of course is like a freshman at, or a sophomore at Stanford, you know, designed the whole platform. And I'm like, this little kid, I wish I had developed it because it's brilliant. And they have the ability to screen our film and keep it like protected as a, as an intellectual property. And then click another button, you can go into the conversation. So luckily the world is used to what we're on right now. You know, yeah. folks are used to I, virtual conversation. Absolutely. And so we jumped to that field. We'll make sure to have a link to that event in the in the show notes, Andre. Is that open to the the general public? Yes, yes, open to everyone. We with invent with 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 this inventive pro. To say this, you know, all the platforms are great. All of them have their space and the like. But when you come to try and pulling together a large community and bring folks in, you have to find ways to make it work. And so we found one. So yes, you can spread it. We can take a we can take a lot of people at once into the conversation and we'll be taking questions and just trying to guide folks through the dialogue. Cause, cause what our, what our work typically is, is our work is a spark to the conversation. We tell people we're not going to fix racism by the end of our workshop, whether it's a two day workshop or an hour long workshop, we're not going to fix racism. And you shouldn't be here to win. You should be here to listen and be interested and curious about learning more. Um, Because that that really is, I think that's the path towards it. I had a gentleman say to me once, I feel like you, at the end of my workshop, I feel like you just put me on the shore and put a spoon in my hand and said, change that ocean. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I kind of did. Now, imagine if I can get a million people along that shore with you, all with their spoons out. We can shift that ocean a little bit. That's what the work is about. So bring more people to the shore. And let's get to work. Let's chip away at this big problem that, that, is, that is of our creation and is ours to fix and turn around. I, I, I like that metaphor. It's, it's powerful. And, and it does show so clearly, I think, how the change needs to happen at the individual level. And if it happens enough at the individual level, it'll be a societal shift. 
Um, so Andre, I, I want to talk for a moment about uh, where you're situated, which which is in New York City, and in a lot of ways, you're at the epicenter of these these two you know major crises and two major world events occurring. Uh, as a New Yorker, you're, you're at ground zero for uh, coronavirus and the impacts of COVID-19. Uh, you work in industries that have been heavily affected by the pandemic. Uh, and finally, you're a Black American who's been fighting for years for social justice. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what trying to make sense of the events in the last two weeks and, and few months has, has meant for you? Oh, that's a deep one. Um, I know that's yeah. a big question. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I've thought about it a lot, of course. You know, I'm here in the East Village in Manhattan, in New York City, and uh, I lost a good friend around the corner from me. I'm on 7th Street. He was on 5th or 4th. And, you know, he succumbed to COVID-19 early on. And this dude was in better shape physically than I'll ever be in my life. Like a walking I'm sorry muscle. to hear that. Thank you, thank you. Um, and that was a that was a shock, and that was a like, whoa, this is real. So I locked myself in my apartment. You know, I, I have a mask and I have tons of glass gloves. Like to get out of my building, I have to I have multiple touch points. And I began thinking, like, this is really serious. You know, I'm watching reports and I lost a lost a few friends. You know, lost a few people. Um, I'm over the double digits of people that I know that have succumbed to COVID. So wow. that was very real for me, quickly, quickly. And so I thought about, okay, I got to hunker down and work and devise my plan to run to the market um, and make it happen. You know, and now in the wake of this protest movement, while we're still in COVID, uh, it's, it, get, it gets even more complicated. You know, um, I'm here in the East Village and Another bit of an epicenter, there's a big precinct around the corner from me that I can see out the window, see it right there out the window, actually. And that's been a place where protesters have come. And Washington Square Park is about 10 minutes um, west of me, Union Square Park, 10 minutes north of me, uh, mm -hmm. Tompkins Square Park, 10 minutes east of me. You know, and you, starting at five o'clock, you can hear the surges and the people starting to come. It's like the chants, like, and it builds up. Um, and a lot of people come to the precinct around the corner and actually um, line up to protest there. So, you know, it's intense. I had, I, I had some stuff taken. I don't know. I'm, I'm in a tenement building, walk up five floor like a crazy person in New York. Not crazy person. <laughs> not something I imagine I'd be in my age, but I, I love it. This is where I want to be. And I, I had stuff taken that I had gotten, that I ordered, that I needed, you know, that was looted and I do my quotation marks because um, I think looting is another long conversation that a lot of people talked about but it is I'm, I'm it may sound crazy but I'm glad to be here and be a part of this and witness it firsthand because I have been for the longest time fighting against systemic racism against inequality against injustice against inequity um, I've been having I've been having this night this dream I'll say nightmare where I, I keep I just yell into the void. I told you, I told you all we could avoid this, you know, but I'm not, that's not, that's not the platform I take. The platform I take is, okay, we're here. How are we going to really make some change? And I don't mean the pop culture. Hey, I'm all about this issue now. I don't mean that. 
you know, the boy, the, the Montgomery boycott, the Montgomery bus boycott lasted for 381 days. We are about 15, 16 days into protests and we're pushing for some massive reform and we're trying to find the shape that it will take. And, you know, this stuff takes up, this, we're, we're, we're unpacking and deconstructing some major systems that we honestly depend on financially, uh, existentially, mm-hmm. you know, um, and even potentially emotionally. That's going to take some serious work to take apart and deconstruct because we see these systems are not the most productive for all of us in our society. And even those of us who benefit from this, I say the system is not broken. The system is working very well for those who benefit from it. But even those people are saying, wait a minute, we're not truly benefiting. And if we believe, we have never achieved what is on paper for this country. We have never achieved equity and justice and liberty for all. When it was written, it didn't have us all in mind. But if we believe in this dream of America, we have to really um, take it apart and rebuild it. And when you look at what's happening on the the ground, Andre, and even the sustained nature of the the protests and the increasing worldwide nature of the protests as well. Does this feel different to you this time? Does it feel like a a turning point? Yeah, I was, I was just before we talked, talked with a buddy of mine who just, who just made it a lawyer friend of mine who just made judge in uh, North Carolina in Orange County. And great guy. And, you know, we were talking and he we were discussing saying, it's a real, it's an incredibly pivotal moment. Everyone in the world, in the world was stopped and forced to sit and think about mortality at a very serious rate and level. That mm-hmm. it might come to you in a way that you can't see, you can't imagine, you could touch something and potentially face your mortality, your ending, yeah. in a very painful, scary way. And that was happening. And then these incidents started to unfold and come to us. That were sadly typical incidents with black folks getting murdered by police. But something happened where I think folks, when the George Floyd event happened, Oh, it, just, it was like a, a tidal wave of events that led up to it that some magic not magic some moments happened that just led us to folks going like, you know what enough is enough and I think mm-hmm. people were in their houses and sitting and thinking and you're hearing I mean I, when I first heard the statistic about uh, people of color having higher rates of um COVID infection, infection, being infected, sorry, being infected more, sorry, yep. say that again. and a higher, higher mortality rate as well. Yeah. Yeah. When I first heard about people of color and primarily black people having higher rate of mortality related to COVID, I, that freaked me out. And I sat thinking, well, this is this, here we are again, you know, yeah. and I think other people started to hear that. So yes, I think it's very different. I think it's very different. I'm so hopeful. And that sounds crazy, maybe to some people, but I'm so hopeful for what could happen right now. We have the chance to really make change happen, to really, really push for change. We can't, normal is done. You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing normal that can happen. And, and luckily there are examples of it that we can point to. Um, 
I know folks hear things like defund police and end police departments. And when, many, when Minneapolis made that decision, folks are like, oh, how are we going to do that? I'm like, hey, Camden did this a couple of years ago. Camden, mm-hmm. New Jersey, yeah. they said, okay, everybody out is a police, car- a police person. Reapply. Here's the training. Here's what you have to do. Because they were a city that was, that was on the, the verge of just ending, you know? Yeah. And when you drive around Camden now, being someone that goes to Philadelphia, it's different. It's different. It, it's not perfect. It worked. Yes. yes. It's an improvement, at least. An improvement. And we have the chance to make to try these things to work because we can't continue on. The budget for police in New York City is $6 billion a year. $6 billion. Yeah, it is mind-boggling. We don't, we don't need the tanks that I've seen in the streets. I just don't think we need those. Um, so the reform has to happen. So that's a very long way, very long answer to say, yes, I do. I see a magic. I keep saying magic. Because um, I think I, I think I felt it was so unbelievable that we could see some change. Maybe that's why I keep saying magic. But I think that we are in a spot where change has to happen. So I don't think all those people out there protesting are going to go back to what was happening before. Even the people who are not protesting, who are looking, saying, "Well, it's probably not fair that that man died that way." You know, I, I have a, a good buddy who's today's his birthday, actually, a good buddy who's a New York police officer. And whenever I'm asked to speak about police, I tend to call him first and say, I'm not police. I need your thoughts and ideas. Here's a topic. What do you think? Now, when the Eric Garner case happened, he said to me, so Andrea, I'm an officer. I can tell you that officer won't be, won't face any charges, won't be indicted. He's going to be fine. And I was like, do you see what I saw? How could you, how could you believe that? He was like, it's, it's just the truth. Um, when the George Floyd case happened, he reached out to me without any invitation, and said, hey, I want you to know that everyone in my precinct watched that and we think it's an execution. And I said, well, that's, a, that's something. You know? And I said, how do, you, how do you think about this work? And what, what, how do you come to, how do you show up every day? What are you thinking? He said, you know, I want to do the best I can at my job and check my bias wherever I can to actually do better at my job. To me, that's a major step, you know? It's, I want more. I want a complete overhaul and change, but I'll take some of that because this is not going to change tomorrow. But if I can get this person to agree to show up in different ways and think about how they participate in this system and then restructure that system, and even to go back to the law firm, you know, when you show up in your firm and you make rules and ideas and policies and practices, how are they benefiting everyone and who are they excluding? you know, without you even knowing it. And that means having a conversation with someone different from you and saying, how are you feeling in this moment? And, and facing, I think that first, that first, I'm pointing to the heart, because that first moment, people get so nervous, like, oh, I don't want to go talk to her because I'll sound stupid or ignorant or something. We have, a, we have a, one of our norms or guiding lights we use for this conversation. It's called first draft. What does it mean when you sit down with someone and assume that, their response or their ways of talking about these issues is their first draft. And your response back is a first draft and get to the final draft. Lawyers should know about this. Yeah. You know, my, my, first, my first job in entertainment was working at a company that shall remain nameless. But I, my, my first job was writing Uma Thurman's contract for a movie. You know, so I, I dug into the legal legalese world. 
I know the above reference here to refer to as language better than I probably than I probably should. And that that whole idea of like drafting and drafting and drafting again, how can you approach it yourself and say, this is my first draft talking about this conversation. I may make some mistakes, but we're gonna get there. If you can sit in that space and move forward and um get somewhere, you're doing something, you know? I think that's a, a great metaphor um, and a way of maybe leaning into that idea of being comfortable, being uncomfortable. If you look at it as a first draft, I'm going to say something, I might get it entirely wrong, but feel the permission to tell me when I get it completely wrong. And it feels like that's the mindset we need to truly advance the, the conversation around race in this country. Uh, Andre, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, to conclude, I'm wondering if you have one ask of our audience in the legal community, uh, what, what would you leave us with? Um, <clears throat> I think my, my ask for the legal community is change. Hiring new people, changing policy, all of that's great. All the things, all the boxes you can check, all the institutional shifts you can make are wonderful. But if you don't personally understand how you participate in this system that is our country, you're not making any serious and deep change, which is what we need. We all need to change. I do, I work, I do this work and learn about how I participate in, it, in the problem every day. I learn something new every day. And I work to fix that and turn that around. That's a great note to end on. Thanks for joining us today. Really enjoyed our conversation, Andre. Oh, thank you for having me. This is, this is, this is what we got to do. We got to do this. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 